As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The culture is the culture. It's four to six A to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. The plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. Welcome back to Four to Six with A and B, your Ohio State podcast on the athletic. Bill Landis joined as always by Ari Wasserman. We are 12 days away from Ohio State season opener against Nebraska on October 24th. And Ari, there's breaking news. I don't know if you heard this or not. Monday morning, Big Ten announced Ohio State and Michigan is going to be a noon kick. Who's writing that story? Who's, am I writing that story or are you writing that story? You're beat now, bud. I don't know. You, you tell me. <laughs> All right. All right. Let me hit pause real quick. I'm going to go write that. We'll get it up and then we'll come back. Uh, no, that's like the – I opened the email. I was like, oh, maybe let's say it's like a 3.30. It's on a Friday because it's 2020 and it's a weird year. Nope. Noon on Fox. Yeah, I mean, isn't that like just based on the order in which these networks select? And like noon is always the big showcase for Fox now. Like, is that yeah. the least surprising thing in the world? Like, would they? Was there any chance that they might do something different for real, or was it always just going to be the obvious thing? No, I think this was the obvious. Once they settled on moving it back to the end of the end of the regular season, like before, it was going to be in October, and I don't know, maybe yeah. you get funky under the lights. Thing. Under the lights, yeah. How about under the lights, alternate uniforms, and they play basketball? <laughs> I'd watch that. Who would win in the basketball game between Ohio State and Michigan? Let me write that down. That's actually pretty good. Gonna, I think we know who would. I'm going to write that story. Yeah. I'll just break down the stars for that. Okay. Um, Ohio State's opener against Nebraska is also a noon kick on Fox. We knew that, I think, but it was confirmed on Monday. A bunch of other week one kickoff times. With Minnesota's playing like four Friday night games or three Friday night games, which is kind of weird. The first Big Ten game is October 23rd, Friday night, Illinois and Wisconsin. Wisconsin looking to avenge that upset last year. But no Friday announcements for Ohio State yet. We'll see on that. I like Friday games. I had I was kind of hoping they would get one um, in the first couple weeks of the season, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Maybe like Michigan State could be a Friday night game or something. I don't know. Do you like Friday games? Yeah. I love uh, Friday games. I love Thursday games. I love Wednesday games. And I hate COVID, but I'm happy that there's an NFL game on Tuesday night now. <laughs> I wish that they had a, a football game on to some degree every night of the week, uh, college and NFL. Like they sh- there should never be a night where there's no football on. And like I'm excited to watch the Coastal Carolina game on Wednesday. That's the kind of person I am. So I don't know if you're like that, but I, I don't know. Tuesday night is the worst night of the of the week on, in the fall until they have weird action games sometimes. But I don't know if those are even happening. Yeah, they are happening. No, I think we're trending toward that for sure with – once the NFL gets a taste of those Tuesday night football games, I don't think they're going to want to want to go back from that. You know what I mean? Um, so I mean, I the think, ratings are going to be off the charts. Yeah. I think if they had one, I don't know if they could make a functional schedule, but if they had one NFL game every night of the week, no matter what, don't you think they would be the highest rated te- television program on TV every single night? Yeah, as long as they don't give us like Jets-Dolphins like they did a few weeks ago. But even that ended up being an okay game. What were they thinking? 
everyone's got to play a Thursday night game, and I guess they just said let's let's throw this garbage out there for one night. I don't know. It's football. I'll watch it. Football's like pizza. Yeah, I'd still watch it too. Yeah, I'll watch it. I did watch Carolina. It. I have a, There's a I have, spread on all these games. I have a vested uh, fantasy football interest in Coastal Carolina running back CJ Maribel, so I'll watch that game. Yeah, they're fun too. All right, this is not a Coastal Carolina podcast. This is an Ohio State podcast. We're going to do over unders for the 2020 season. On this episode of 4 to 6 with A and B, we'll also have our defensive line preview as you make our way through the position groups. We have a few more left than we have only. Let me do math real quick. One, two, three, four shows until we have an actual football game to break down. Um, so we'll get through those position groups. We'll do some over-unders today. And uh, later this week, I think we'll talk a little bit about the opener with Nebraska. Try to get our, our Nebraska writer, Mitch Sherman, on to talk a little bit about that game and continue with those position group previews like i said um if you are not subscribed to the athletic the athletic.com slash four dash six still gets you one dollar off per month one dollar or sorry not one dollar off it's one dollar per month not yeah $1 off. It's I, $1 I just want to talk about you could get for two dollars a subscription to the athletic for a month and a four-piece spicy nugget at mcdonald's like i mean come on that's a bargain tell um tell people what you and max olson have running this week oh uh we are doing a five-part series about um, reasonable expectations for recruiting results for all Power 5 teams, and we broke it up conference by conference. And the first one was the ACC that ran Monday uh, when we're recording this. And I I hope people like it. It took a lot of work to just look up all the numbers and shout out to our editor, Mitch Light, for helping us with the numbers and the spreadsheets and breaking down how teams have done. It was very... Uh, interesting. I personally spent the most time on the Big Ten one, um, and I think people will find that interesting to see like where teams are recruiting and have recruited for the past ten years, and where I think they should be. Um, so thanks for letting me plug that. I appreciate it. It's uh, one a day between Monday and Friday. I had a story over the weekend on Jamison Williams that got me really excited about Jamison Williams. I made myself excited by something that I wrote in the most egotistical sequence of events that's ever happened. Um, I'm very, I'm like very intrigued by what Jamison Williams is going to do in this offense and how much she can improve the yards after catch numbers. I broke that all down. You can get that at the athletic, the athletic.com slash four dash six, $1 per month. Tell your friends, um, over unders last week or last year we did 10 and I went back on Monday morning and listened to what I believe was our second ever episode of this podcast where we did over unders before the FAU game. We did 10 of them last year. I want you to guess how well each of us did. I did really, really well. You did better than I did. Yeah, I know. I'm amazing at this. I'm great at over-unders. No, um, uh, I probably went 7-3. and three. You nailed it. You went 7-3. and three, I went 5-5. Five and five. You are smarter than me when it comes to football stuff. There's no doubt about it. Like, you do um, a lot of, like, in-depth thinking for uh, why things should occur, and I think that it's very interesting to think that uh, – what you think makes sense because it always does but you're like doug and our mentor and how you think sometimes and i think that you would analyze something so much that you analyze off the track of like the obvious things sometimes is that fair yeah that can happen but there's also things like this that happen where like i'm right even when i'm not right for instance last year i set the over under for chris olave receptions at 48 and you told me i was nuts and it was too low or sorry i said it at 42 he ended up with 48 and you took the over, and then you told me I was nuts, and it should have been way higher. And I was like, kind of on the number, and I said under, but like my idea was right, my number was wrong. But that's a loss for me. I'll take the loss. Well, the thing about it is, is I don't think it's so much about whether or not you're technically right as it comes to like the number. I think what it is is an interesting discussion dissecting the over under and what that's supposed to represent. And you can absolutely be right. Um, I remember we used to do outrageous predictions and, and crazy predictions during our time at Cleveland.com, and sometimes. We would pick the upset, uh, Ohio State getting upset by a team like Maryland, and then even if Ohio State escaped, if it was a close game, like your analysis was correct, right? Yeah. So it's about the analysis and the discussion, and for that, I'm sure on the podcast that you listened to, you did better than me then. So you, you, I'll take the stats. You can take the the context. I did say that Chase Young would have fewer than nine sacks, and he had 16 and a half. So, that know, was really good. They, he, were, they weren't all shining moments. For, I think Pittsburgh's uh, history is about to repeat itself on this podcast. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see when we get to that one. Okay. We got 10 over-unders. Uh, Give to me that 10. Trying to split it up. Offense, defense. There's one special teams one, and then there's one that's kind of related to the season as a whole. All right. First one, uh, there's two on Justin Fields. First one on Justin Fields. Passing attempts 
per game. I have the number at 31. Are you over or under? Over. Last year, he attempted 25 a game. This year, I think they're going to rely less uh, on running the ball with the running backs. No J.K. Dobbins equals less fun in that regard. I do think that Fields uh, might be more prone to running the ball himself, but I don't know if it's going to um, get to the point where he's running in situations where they don't feel it's necessary, and I don't see a lot of games on the schedule that presents itself. The only thing that I think could get in the way of this is if Ohio State is blowing people out and they have two freshman quarterbacks who need to get into the game, um, and that could change the numbers a little bit. So you actually might get trickier with this and say under for that reason. I don't know what you're going to say, but that's the only thing that gave me pause. But if we're talking about four quarters of football, I think Ohio State's going to blow through that with passing attempts. No, I'm with you. I'm I'm over too. Um, I think what you said is valid, but I also think, as we've talked about about before, like the the, um, style points kind of being – more important this year than, than they are in most years because you're playing fewer games and the teams are going to be, be compared against, at least in theory, you'll be playing fewer games. So I think they're going to throw it a lot. Um, I also think Justin Fields is just growing as a player and, and the dynamics of the offense are changing and it's going to be – It's not, I don't think it's going to be like 60% pass or anything crazy like that, but last year it was like 63% run. Um, and I think it's going to be much closer to 50-50 if not tipped a little bit more in favor of throwing the ball just a tad bit more than you run it. Um, Dwayne Haskins threw it 38 times per game in 2018. I don't really think Justin Fields gets up near that number. But, you know, we're only talking about five, six, seven more throws per game than he had last year. And I think if you go through each of his games, you can see at least four or five instances probably in every game where he had a throw to make and he just didn't make it. He pulled it down, he ran, um, he threw it away. And that's all fine. I mean, when you're a young quarterback, I think you'd rather him do stuff like that than make mistakes. But I think he's going to be a different kind of player this year and try to be more aggressive with his throwing. So I think this is almost kind of like a safe number to get to. Um, And I'm over. I think he lands somewhere between like 33, 35 throws a game. um, Yeah. and, And really kind of lights it up a little bit. Okay, well, let's hope this trend of us agreeing doesn't continue because it's not fun. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, another one for Justin Fields, and this is a high number. I might have gone too high with this. Total touchdowns, 50. And the most games he can play is 11. So what I'm asking you is do you think Justin Fields in a full 11-game season is going to average f- four and a half, five touchdowns per game? Yeah, uh, when I saw the number, I went back and I looked at last year's totals. And I was like, he already had 50 last year, and I think he's going to be better this year. And then I forgot they're playing like nine less games. <laughs> so uh, when I realized that they're playing less games, I said under. I think uh, 40 is a good number for 10 games, for a game. Uh, and that's the uh, scenario that I'm at. So I, and I don't think it's going to be a drop-off of production. I think it's a drop-off of ability. And I also think, too, that maybe some of those later touchdowns, even if the – running up the score might be beneficial for Ohio State this year I do think that those two younger quarterbacks are going to get a lot of time this year because it's a necessity for the health of the program long term yeah I just don't see him racking up six seven I mean didn't JT Barrett have a few six touchdown games he Mm -hmm. might have even had a seven touchdown game I don't I don't know if Ohio State's going to be in a position to do that this year just based on um all the weirdness that is occurring in the sport, how much they need to get their younger guys into the game. And, of course, you want to try to preserve your, your yourself. And sometimes I wonder too, Bill, and, you know, we have this discussion quite regularly, but we all know what happened to Justin Fields at the end of the Penn State game last year. I think Ryan Day probably is haunted by that, and I wonder if that's going to impact the way that he uses him in late-game scenarios this year. I don't know. you got to balance between uh, protecting your quarterback and keeping him healthy long-term, but also – you know, looking as good as you can in, in terms of the eye test um, in the limited amount of games you do have. It's kind of a weird, tricky, you know, back and forth that I'm going there in my head. But I think under 50 is a pretty safe number if he had 51 in the full amount of games last year. Yeah, it's, it's you're basically asking yourself, like, will he average one? He averaged about three, a little over three and a half touchdowns per game last year. Um, and there were a lot of games where he wasn't playing much in the second half. I, I kind of think he can get there. It's really hard, like you said, because they got to get these young guys in. You got to make the balance of, of exposing him to hits and stuff like that, while at the same time making sure your finals look good and you kind of leave no doubt. It's a really high pace to keep up. I just like their schedule's not very good. I think there are going to be games where Justin Fields can get four touchdowns in the first half. It's like he throws for two. Absolutely. He, runs, he throws for two. He runs for two, and 
maybe you pull him in on the first drive of the second half and he gets another one. And, like, I, I don't know. I think you can get the five, six touchdowns with this guy but pretty you to, easily. You have to do that every game, though. But I think, like, truly, who, how many teams on their schedule would you almost, like, assume None. that's going to be the case? Oh, yeah, all of them, I think. Like, but I also know that weird stuff happens in the sport all the time and making the highest possible number the benchmark is always a safe under to me yeah because i think like i think that is it possible that he goes over absolutely i'm not gonna ever be in the camp that's gambling against justin fields and his ability um i'm gambling against the clock on this one and i think in order to be perfect in a year where things can go wrong so easily on top of the fact that they have young quarterbacks that need to play like hoping that he gets to six touchdowns by the middle of the third quarter ten times is not this prudent play in my opinion. If it happens, that would be remarkable, and then we'll discuss how crazy that is at the end. But expectation and achievement of something crazy are two separate things. There's only one quarterback in the country right now that's at this pace, and it's Sam Ellinger at Texas. He has 21 touchdowns through, I think they played four games, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they're also all been close games. Like he's playing the entire game. They've had overtimes too, um, so that that bumps that number up considerably it's a really hard pace to match um but i really like this is this is his show man i think i i'm gonna pick the over i think i think he's gonna i think he's gonna at least flirt with it i'll pick the over as saying as my way of saying like i think he comes really close to doing this this is a context pick again you're gonna be wrong at the end of the year but you might be technically right yeah which is fine I'll take the yeah. L. I'll take the L. Because if the yeah. idea is if the idea is right, then you're looking at a hell of a season from Justin Fields. Like, yeah. Well, I think you, if, if the answer, if the question is, is he going to have a hell of a season? Uh, make sure I'm on record. Yeah. Over uh, under hell of a podcast season. record. Uh, <laughs> over hell of a season. <laughs> uh, Chris Olave receptions. I use this the, his total from last year, 48. He had 49 last year at the stats that I was looking, but I get it. Um, he had. Where were you looking? Uh, college football stats. Hmm. Okay, you can talk. I'll make sure I'm right on that number. It doesn't really matter. I, I think the point is the point, but unless I like misread something, I think he's going to be under 48 because a the amount of players that they have to be throwing the ball to has increased and the time has uh, shrunk. But can I tell you something that's kind of a weird spinoff of this? Mm-hmm. I think he's going to score as many touchdowns, if not more, with less receptions. I think Olave is going to be their big play over the top guy. Um, I think he does gets, has a knack for getting behind defenses, and I do think that his production in terms of getting to the end zone is going to get matched. I think he's the most reliable player on the team in terms of the receiving um, aspect, and I, I think that like he just always has a gift for finding the end zone, and I think that the, the, the decrease in production of receptions isn't going to result in a decrease of scoring. I agree with that. I think he'll, he'll score at, at the same pace, if not better. Mostly as a, as a byproduct of, of them throwing the ball a little more. It is 49. I was looking at sports reference. They had 48. But Ohio State's official stats have 49 for him. But we'll keep it at 48 because that's what I wrote when I sent you these things. Um, you're under. I think I'm over. It's like I think Chris Olave is going to catch five balls a game. And if he does that, he's over. Um, he, he, I mean, he'd only need like four and a half per game. And I think last year he was he was under that, I think, by a considerable margin. Wasn't targeted like a true number one gets targeted because they rotated so many guys. Um, I think he's looking at a significant uptick in targets. And I think he's going to be a guy who catches between four and five balls in every game and has the occasional game where it's like six or seven or eight because of how much more they're going to throw the ball this year. So I'm over on 48. Yeah. I, I also think we have to be kind of consistent. If I think that he's going to throw the ball 33 times a game, then I have to also put that into account. And I want people to know that I'm not being inconsistent. I'm just waiting for the next question. Yeah, there are other there are other guys to consider when you're when you're talking about this. So the next the next one is receptions per game from the leading freshman receiver. Receptions Over. per game from the leading freshman receiver three. Over. Over. Like confident, no doubt about it. Over. Uh, fairly confident. Last year, Garrett Wilson averaged 2.3 receptions per I game. I know. I saw that. But now there's more of them. Yep. But that would also lead me but to believe that would be... That would be less, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I think it's going to be over because um, I'm trying to account for the um, increase in attempts from fields that I said would happen. 
Yeah. So if it's not Olave, then it has to get made up somewhere. And I think it's possible that one of these four freshmen, and I don't know if part of the question is you have to specify which one because that makes it even harder. It's like the triple crown at the at the racetrack. But I think that one of these freshman receivers is going to burst onto the scene, and I think that it's possible for them to get to three and a half, four receptions a game for sure. Like I, I, I anticipate that happening. And in a, in a wide-open offense with, with um, the players that they have at this position, I wish that – like as Jamison Williams is a redshirt, right? So it doesn't count. But you want to. He's a true. I think he's a sophomore. He played. He might be a sophomore. Yeah. Okay. I think that it's possible that a guy like Jackson Smith the Jigba comes out and is on the field a ton and averages three and a half receptions a game, especially if those guys are staying on the field when Miller and Stroud are in the game. I think it's on the table. Some of the stuff we've talked about, what how much they're going to play with two tight ends and like what the formations might look like. But if they start coming out in some looks where they're putting two slot receivers on the field like they used to do with K.J. Hill and Paris Campbell, and then your two slots are Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and Jigba most of the time, then, then I think Smith and Jigba can get there. There's an opening on the outside, too. It's like Chris Olave and Jamison Williams are the top two guys on the outside right now, but I, th- I think they're going to rotate at least three, if not four guys, through there pretty regularly. And if um, G. Scott Jr. and Julian Fleming are playing kind of like the same amount of snaps as Ben Victor and Austin Mack were playing last year and the team's throwing the ball more, like I think any of these guys can get there to this number. It's only three per game. It's not It's not a gigantic number. Garrett Wilson had – the most he ever had in one game was four. He did it three times, including against Clemson. So we're talking about like one more catch per game than Garrett Wilson had last year. Um, I'll say over two, uh, or maybe it'll end up being like right on the number. Maybe I should have made this two and a half. Um, but, I, but I think they get one more catch-ish than Garrett Wilson had last year. And I think my pick would be Smith and Jigba too. I, I just I think he's going to end up being the one who's on the field more the most out of all the freshman guys. Yeah, yeah. But I think if you reserve it to some – I think it's really hard, and the, the the one question we get all the time, and the hardest one to answer is which freshman is going to break out. I think if you leave yourself room to allow one of them to rise to the top, even if our guess turns out to be wrong, I think it's very. It wouldn't be surprising to me, and I'm I, I assume I'm speaking for you here too, Bill. But like, if Julian Fleming turned out to be the guy, like I don't think anybody'd be like, whoa, you know. So like, giving yourself an opportunity to be wrong with who it is, but also be right on the stat, I think is a pretty safe thing to do. The only one that would surprise me is Mookie Cooper, but I also think they could toss Mookie Cooper like three jet sweeps per game, and then that's technically yeah. three, three receptions, three quick like shovel passes. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's on. I think it's on the table for any of the four of them. Um, and I think whoever whoever is the leader among the freshmen, I think clears clears this benchmark rather easily. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, here's a big one for the offense as a whole. Points per game, 49.9. Why don't you just rephrase this, one of the best offenses of all time? Is that is that what we're doing here? I want to um, know if you think they're going to score 50 points per game. I don't. Uh, it hasn't been done since 2013. Uh, two teams have done it that year. It was Baylor and Florida State. Ohio State doesn't play in the Big 12. Um I think scoring 50 points a game is really, really tough. And, uh, you know, though Alabama is doing it, they also got to play Lane Kiffin defense. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Last year, I think that people would say LSU was the greatest offense ever. Um, You might not agree with it, but I think it's a a thought. And they scored 48.4. And I understand, too, that they're in a more condensed schedule and they don't play in the SEC and a 60-point game here or there might – tip the averages a little bit more than they would in a normal extended season. But 
if that's the baseline, I just I think it's a I think it's a few points too far. I think 45 is the number that I would think 45 to 47 maybe because I think that's done been that's been done pretty regularly. You see a lot of teams in between 44 and 48. Um, when you look at the stats from the past five, six years. And I think we're both on record saying that we think this offense has a chance to be one of the best offenses ever. But I don't know if I'm confident enough in the running back position right now to put it over the top and say, hey, this team's going to score 50 a game. I think that's a, a, a half step too far. It's a really good point about the running backs because not only do you have to be explosive to to do stuff like this, but I think you have to be really efficient in the red zone too when you get down there. Finishing you, drives, you can't. Yeah, you can't have empty drives. I think if you want if you want to get to this kind of number, um, and Justin Fields is a great weapon in the red zone, so, and and I think he might make up for whatever deficiencies they might have might have at running back. Um, last year they scored forty six point nine points per game. That was a program record. The twenty thirteen team, I think it was, scored forty five points per game, and that was a pretty prolific offense. Um, at the time I'm going over I think they scored four they scored up just about 47 points per game last year and I thought they pulled their foot off the gas quite a bit in games last year and I just don't think they're going to do that this year Landis do you want to ship the trophy to the Woody now or do they put it in your house so you can bubble pat bubble wrap it up I'll bubble wrap it for you uh, is one of the over unders national championship trophies at point five? <laughs> no, we should uh, we should actually we should have put a wager on this. We should have put a friendly wager on this. We can. Final How about a thousand bucks? <laughs> I always love saying that to you. How about a thousand dollars? The best pickup line is a thousand dollars cash. <laughs> <laughs> no, in the spirit in the spirit of this podcast, I think it should be food related. Okay. Whoever loses has to eat one hundred spicy nuggets. No, why would or you? Eat. I think the loser should have to should have to treat the the winner to a to a quality meal of the winner's choosing. Okay, yeah. are you talking about this one specific one or all ten? Total? No, no, no. We'll do we'll do all ten, and then uh, I'll I'll come down to Dallas at some point after the football season because I got to give you your snowboard back. You're gonna drive it in your car all the way out here, yeah. special deliver it. Yeah, and then while I'm down there, whoever whoever wins this uh, or whoever loses this thing is gonna treat the other one to a nice steak dinner or whatever whatever the winner. You know chooses. what I was thinking about, Bill, and I haven't told you this, but in quarantine, I went to Phoenix to quarantine with my family because I haven't seen them very much. Uh, everybody listening, and you know, I got a solid three or four months uh, at home with my parents after not being with them since I was in high school. And I had Bill ship me my PlayStation, like go into my apartment and give me my PlayStation because it was one major thing that I forgot. Who would go quarantine without their PlayStation, right? Bill, I think it was 100 bucks to ship it, right? Yep. I just traded in the PlayStation for 150 and like that's <laughs> almost it's 65% of how much it costs for you to ship it to me. And it just like hit me like two days after I traded it in of how stupid that was. <laughs> And my dad is always uh, um, trying to give me friendly advice about how to be prudent with my finances, and that is not a good example. So sorry about that, Dad. Just for the record, I didn't pay for it. I, I paid for it, but you reimbursed me for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to make you pay for it. I just I needed the PlayStation. And it turned out that we played golf and had some good times on the, on the, on the PlayStation. But, man, that was a little bit more expensive now that I put it in perspective than I probably should have. Yeah, I should have just traded it in for you. You should have traded it in for me. Give me 150 bucks, and then just send it to me, and I'd buy a used one on eBay for 150. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I still came out on top. Like I came out on top 50. You can use that 50 to buy me dinner in January. I'd be more than happy. I'll I'll buy you dinner if you come here. I don't need you to lose a bet. (laughs) I'll take you to Campisi's, your favorite pizza place. God, that's the worst. Nothing worse than someone's like, "Hey, come to this place. They got good pies. Check it out." And then you go there and. My fitness freak does not hold up. girlfriend who's gluten-free suggested we eat pizza at a certain place, and we went there, and it was terrible, and I'm pretty shocked that the person who hasn't had real pizza in 10 years as a result of not eating gluten would have been off the mark on suggesting the right pizza place. But you live and you learn. Great ambiance. Terrible pizza. When we walked in there, I thought this was about to be life-changing. And, and, and to her credit, she suggested this place because I think everybody rants about it, so it wasn't from a personal yeah. opinion. Uh, and when we walked in, I thought she was about to hit a home run out of the park, and I started looking around. You never, you ever do the the long walk to the table when you're at a restaurant and like look at other people's yeah. dishes to see what like what what, and then you go, oh, what's that? You know, 
I was looking at the pizza on these tables. I was like, Bill, this ain't it, man. <laughs> I, I think I even told you when I sat yeah. down. <laughs> Great calamari, terrible pizza. Yeah. Felt like an ep- uh, a scene out of Goodfellas, and you sit down, and it's basically yeah. Little Caesars. Yeah. Um, uh, Little Caesars is worse. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our next over-under. Uh, kick returns for a touchdown. Set it at z- uh, a half. So are they going to have one, or are they not going to have one? Under. You know, this year is the 10-year anniversary of the last time Ohio State returned a kick for a touchdown. I was going to say, I was I, I covered Ohio State 10 years, every game for 10 years, and I think I only saw one. It was that Jordan Hall. Mm-hmm. It's no, been 10 years. November 27th, 2010 against Michigan. My second year on the beat. I was like 13 when that happened. Show me, and then I'll, I'll predict it. Under. I don't know. They always put like the safe guy back there, right? We talked about that before. They know they very rarely put their most dynamic guys back there for kick returns or punt returns. If they put Juice Man or Mookie Cooper back there, I think one of those guys can pop. I remember Paris Campbell came close. I think it was against Indiana, maybe in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. He had like a ninety five yard kick return and got tripped up right at the end. It's absurd to me that Ohio State hasn't had a kick return for a touchdown in a decade with all the talent that comes through here. Um, I'm going over. It's the, it's 2020. God, you are drinking every Kool Aid right now. Yeah, I'm just trying to. I, yeah, I'm just trying to stack the deck. You know, if I guess opposite of you and everyone, maybe I'll yeah. You just want to make sure there's a clear winner. What would that meal even be that you would want? You'd have to pick it in Texas. Yeah, I don't know. I'd find like I find a uh, like an Outback. God, I, I I'll gladly pay for your Outback. Kookaburra wings. Got a kookaburra ring. Got a blooming onion, and then what do you get? The the chicken dish that you always get. Alice, and I smash Alice a hamburger. Springs, Alice Springs chicken. Yeah, and yeah. and some regular dew on the table too. <laughs> Never killed anyone. A little Mountain Dew. All right, I'm over. They're returning the kick for a touchdown this year. Mookie Cooper's going to do it. Okay, great. Oh. I think Juice Man. I thought Juice Man would have been your pick after you hyped yourself up writing about his writing about him. He can be the pick too. He's Teddy Ginn. Did you? You read the story that I wrote about him from St. Louis, comparing him to Ted Ginn, right? Yeah. And did you watch his film from high school and then compare it to Ted, and do you agree with it? I did not do the comparison, no. But you got you got Daryl Hazel to do the comparison, right? And that's yeah, all that matters? Yeah, the person who coached both of them, yeah. <laughs> and he yeah. agreed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wanted to know if he, like, it. watching his highlight film, I got Daryl Hazel to do the comparison because I thought it was the same. It looked identical, and people compared him to him, so I didn't get him to do that until I thought it was an appropriate thing to ask because I didn't. He was like, coaching the Vikings, and I didn't want to like bother him. Uh, and he said they were, the comparisons were staggering because they have very similar strides. And like, if Jamison Williams, he would be my pick if I had to. Like me, I might go over just thinking about it because if he has that stride, you know what? Over Jamison Williams. Here we go. I, I, I want over. Here we go. Ohio State hasn't had a game-breaking player in their return game since Ted Ginn. No, Paris Campbell. Am I forgetting anyone? Oh, Paris Campbell. Yeah, I, that's fair. But but Ted Ginn returned like five punts for a touchdown in his career and a few kickoffs. Yeah, he made it normal. Including the, yeah, including the one in the national championship game. He did it so often it was almost expected. The fact that they've gone this long without one, and then now you have the one person who kind of seems like the guy who made it normal, I think that – I think I'm going over with Jamison Williams, but if they can you make a note though, if he isn't used in the return game, then I'm under. Okay, I think that's fair. We'll we'll put that stipulation in there. Look, let the let the record show that if Jamison Williams doesn't go doesn't go back to attempt a kick return, then let the can, record show that have the under. I'm still over. Yeah. Okay. Next one: Zach Harrison sacks ten, one per game. Under. Yeah, I'm under two. Joey Bosa that, was just short of that number in 2014. He had 13 and a half in 15 games. Chase Young had 16 and a half in 12 games last year. That's not normal. Um, I don't think he quite, Zach Harrison quite gets to this level. I think next year he will, but maybe not this year. Yeah, it's just a matter of whether or not you think Zach Harrison's on the same trajectory as some of the best defensive linemen who have ever played at Ohio State. And I thought that he played well and was noticeable last year, but he didn't quite flash to me the way that some of those guys did when they were true freshmen. That's not to say that he can't achieve that that goal. 
um, and won a game, I don't think is a crazy statistic, especially because he could probably get three or four against Rutgers. <laughs> you right. know, I, I, I think that it's more than reasonable to anticipate that he could get to that number. But if you haven't caught a trend with how I view these things, I always am pessimistic first, and I like to be wrong for when they do outperform what I think they're capable of. And when you're wrong about those things, then we can go back and write about how great it is. But I don't like to set the expectation for greatness before I think that that's about uh, a realistic thing to expect. We'll talk more in depth about Zach Harrison, I think, in the defensive line uh, in general a little later on in this episode when we preview that position group. But I'm, I'm under two. I just like he's there wasn't. I thought he was good last year, um, or at least I didn't. I didn't like. I think didn't think he was bad. I didn't think he looked out of place. He played more than I thought he would. But I'm, I just don't think I saw enough to say like, yep, like he's this. Here comes year two, Joey Bosa. Um, here come. I guess like Joey's probably the best case for year two. Chase is the best case for year three. Um, I do think he's there before he leaves. I just don't think this is the year. I'm not even sure. I don't know if I said this on here or not, but I'm not. I'm not sure that he even ends up being their sack leader. I think Tyreek Smith might be. Yeah. Um, but I think Zach has a good year. I think it's. A, I think it's a step forward to get you really excited about what he's going to be next year before he goes to the NFL. Yeah. And if he gets to 10 in this season, then that makes Ohio State a much more attractive national championship contender. So For sure. A lot of these things, too. You know, Jamison Williams emerges in the kick return game, and Zach Harrison does this. And, you know, some of the expectations there were – I think what this is is basically a microcosm of whether or not this team is good enough to win a national championship. And even – uh, the ones that I've been under on, I think you still get a hint of, of optimism towards what this team can do. And it's more of a rational discussion about time constraints than it is about ability. I, I, in terms of ability, I think that all these should be over. I think Ohio State has the ability to do all these things. Yeah, I don't think anything's – other than maybe the 50 touchdown just because of time, I think all these are certainly well within the realm of possibility. Uh, next you're one, a good odds maker. Yeah. Next one, Josh Proctor interceptions, three. This is the same number we used last year. You and I both went over. We were both wrong. Did he play three games last year? Yeah, but he only had yeah, one. I was, or, I was, he had one I was or, making a joke. I don't know if he had one or two, but he didn't have three. Um, under. I think that uh, getting interceptions is really hard to predict. And didn't like the best defensive back of the past two years, Okuda, not get one until his last year at Ohio State? Yes. So uh, I always think it's hard to to predict when they come. Uh, I, I'm very interested to see just the general alignment of the way that they employ their their secondary and how they, they use him. Um, and, you know, I know that he had comparisons to Malik Hooker. And if that's the case and that's who he is, I would say over. But I'm not sure that's who he is yet based on what we saw in the Fiesta Bowl. So uh, – doesn't mean he's not going to have a good year or be a, a, a solid contributor on this defense, but predicting four interceptions is kind of a hard thing to do for anybody. I mean, how many did Okuda have last year? I think Okuda had three last year. He had two so, in one game. And it's easier for safeties to get them than it is for corners, right? Just based yeah. on like overthrows and shots downfield and stuff. So I understand that takes account. And teams tried to not throw to Okuda when they didn't have to. So it's not a, a baseline, straight line comparison between the two, but four interceptions for any defensive back in college football, I think, is a lot. I think this presents an interesting way to think about how teams might attack Ohio State this year. Teams did not throw the ball down the field against Ohio State; they just couldn't. One, the coverage was so good. I think two was a structure of the defense, and three, they didn't have the time because of Chase Young. Um, so their opponent in yards per pretend, yards per attempt last year was five point six, which was number one in the country, and it's like among the best numbers um, of any defense if you go back like the last five or six years, just could not throw the ball down the field against Ohio State. And if that changes this year because there is no Chase Young, there's there's good defensive backs, but maybe there's not a Jeff Okuda in the mix. Um, I think you could see teams maybe try to attack Ohio State a little differently, and then that puts Josh Proctor maybe in some better positions to make plays on the ball than – he had when he was in games last year or that like more than Jordan Fuller had when he was playing the deep middle last year too. I do think it's a fair question of whether or not Josh Proctor is going to find himself playing the deep middle as much as Jordan Fuller did. And I mentioned that last week maybe with some of the ways Ryan Day was talking about Josh Proctor and Marcus Hooker. Like maybe it's Marcus Hooker who finds himself deep more than, more than Josh Proctor does. 
Um, perhaps even to the extent that Marcus Hooker's like the starter when they're in their base defense. I, I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. Um, but I do think there's going to be more opportunity to make plays on the ball down the field. So I'm under – I almost want to be like right on the number. Um, I'll go under, but I do think he's going to have more opportunities than the guys had last year to make these kind of plays. That's what I was talking about with you being uh, – um the analytical mind here like i like i like what you're thinking um yeah I, I i was a good point okay this is like a similar idea at least the i guess the answer comes from similar way of thinking opponent plays of 30 yards or more so this is like measuring explosive plays against ohio state's defense last year they allowed 16 in 14 games is basically one per game the year before, when they were terrible, they allowed almost three per game, essentially three per game, three plays of 30-plus yards per game. Um, I have this number at 22, which is like two per game. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm going to say under. You think that this defense can limit explosive plays like this in kind of the same way it did last year? Yeah, I mean, three per game's a lot. I, I think it'd be closer to last year than two years ago. Uh, I think that's a really like good number. I, I sometimes wonder, and I think this is this might be a nice segue to our defensive line talk, but I also think part of limiting explosive plays is pass rush, mm-hmm. and I think there's some questions about whether or not they can do it as effectively without a man like Chase Young on the end. And that all kind of wraps around back to Tyreek Smith and Zach Harrison, which, you know, again, I think is going to be our discussion. Uh, and you have some new faces in the in the secondary. So I, I think the, the general conventional answer would be over. But I also think that there there has to be some thought process in, in giving Kerry Combs the benefit of the doubt here. And, you know, thinking that these defensive linemen will uh, – you know, rise to the occasion and, and be a little bit better than we think they could be, and they are going to get the right alignments with some of these defensive backs. I, I think that two a game puts you right on the number, and against some of the teams that they're playing, some might be more you know apt to do that than others. But I think it'll, it, what I, I'm excited about this game is that in the, the Nebraska game, if Nebraska is the type of team that can pick up three or four of them, then it might kind of give you some of those warts that you were talking about mm-hmm. in that first week. Uh, but if Ohio State comes out there and beats up Nebraska and limits those plays, then how many teams in the Big Ten do you think have explosive enough playmakers to expose this on a regular basis? And I think that if we're averaging two years ago, which is one of the worst statistical defenses or the worst statistical defense in the history of Ohio State football with one of the better ones of last year, I think I would err closer towards uh, 2019 with this group than I would 2018. Um, and you know, I think you did a really good job with the number. I just think it will be slightly under. I'm with you. I think it's slightly under two. I, I think they're not. I think they're not quite as dominant as they were last year because I just don't think you can take Chase Young and Jeff Okuda out of a defense and expect it to be exactly as dominant, especially or certainly not more dominant than it was um, in 2019. But I, it comes back to me what you said: the the teams that are going to be playing against, like if they were playing Penn State later in the year, and Penn State sort of had his legs under it more with the new offense they're they're implementing there. Maybe I'd feel differently. Um, you guys know I like Indiana. I think Indiana has some pieces that could challenge Ohio State's defense. Um, and then like Michigan, if Joe Milton is good, I think has the, has the pieces too. But you're talking about really three teams in the span of, of eight or nine games that I think even have the potential, like the, the personnel and scheme, 
to to threaten Ohio State's defense in this way. And even when once you get there, there's still some questions about those teams sort of on an individual level um, and whether or not they could kind of sustain that pressure on Ohio State's defense. So I'm under. I think it'll look a little di- little different. Um, I think teams will take more shots against them, but um, I do like their back, like the, the secondary personnel. I actually kind of like it. I'm, I'm not – I don't think I'm as nervous maybe as – some people in the fan base are about the turnover on the back end of the defense. Uh, I actually kind of like it um, as long as Josh Proctor like takes a step forward, and I think he will. Um, so I'm under here too. It's, it'll be over the 16 last year, but it, it'll be under this 22, I think. Last one before we do our defensive line preview. Games that Ohio State will play this year, nine and a half. Over. Do you think they'll play all the regular season games? I do. All their their scheduled nine games. I mean, this is an impossible thing to predict because this is a very unpredictable situation. And I know games are being canceled and postponed pretty regularly at all levels of football right now. But I will say or take this as as an opportunity to say that considering where we were um, with this virus uh, as recently as June and the outlook of what this could mean, I've been very pleasantly surprised by how um, effective they've been able to continue playing college football, you know, and, and, and going into the season, understanding that cancellations and postponements were going to be part of it. It doesn't seem to have really changed the dynamic of the sport. And in the NFL, I know the Titans had some stuff going on and, but this is going a lot better than I thought it would <laughs> um, considering what we were dealing with. And I think as time continues to go on still over 10 days removed from when Ohio state plays their first game that, we hopefully as a country have done uh, a better job of understanding the risks and how to mitigate this virus, but also um, the protocols at the college level, they've had a lot of time to learn from what other programs have been doing, what other NFL teams have been doing, the mistakes that were made, uh, treatments, daily testing, all the things that were necessary and uncertain three months ago are, are getting better every single day that goes by. And every day that goes by where this college football season hasn't been blown up is a um, bigger reason for me to believe that it is an effective way to do this. And thus, I do think that uh, Ohio State will figure out a way to play their games. Uh, I don't know if that means that they're going to have their full lineup in all their games or if there aren't going to be people who miss games or if they're shorthanded or even lose because they don't have a lot of players. But I, I think that, you know, the, the Big Ten's protocols are strict, but I, I have confidence in people doing things the right way and learning from how to, to operate in this weird world enough to think that they're going to play all of them. And I personally don't want to predict that they won't. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think it was a nice opportunity to kind of like just take a minute to appreciate the fact that we're what going into week six now. Uh, and for the most part, the season's been, been held intact. No high profile players from what I can recall off the top of my head have missed games. And overall, I think it's kind of gone pretty well. The thing I don't know is obviously the Big Ten has given itself zero wiggle room for cancellations. They're playing nine games in nine weeks. Their thresholds for cancellation seem much stricter than a lot of these other leagues who are just sort of setting minimum a number minimum available scholarship players rather than a percentage of the roster or a percentage of the population, which is the roster plus key staffers, which is what the Big Ten is doing. Like Vanderbilt played a game against South Carolina this week with 56 scholarship players available. I don't think the Big Ten would do that, just based off how they've acted to this point and what they've said about um, their thresholds for for canceling or pausing and stuff like that. Um, So that gives me a little bit of pause about whether or not I think they're going to get through an entire season. Um, But I think I I would side with you. I think I would say over. I think even if Ohio State does end up having a game canceled, and, and if Ohio State has a game getting canceled, it doesn't mean it could mean something happened with another team, not necessarily Ohio State. Um, I still think they get over this because if, if they can play, if they play eight games, they can win the Big Ten, they get to the playoff, they get the national championship, that then they hit the over on this too. So I'm I'm over as well. I'm I am fairly confident they're going to play all, all nine of their games because I do think the Big Ten has a really good plan in place, even if it took them a long time to get to that point. Um, but I just think it's something to keep in the back of your mind. It's like college football is pushing through a lot of stuff that even the NFL has not necessarily been been as willing to push through. The NFL has moved, moved some games around um, for what seem like 
fewer positive tests than than what college football's done when they've played games when you know thirty scholarship players aren't available. So I don't know. I think it's just like everyone knows what, what kind of situation we're in, but I think it, it bears repeating as we're a week out from from a little le- more, a little less than two weeks out from Ohio State's opener that this isn't guaranteed they're going to be able to pull off all nine games and then play in the playoff. They could but still they could still they get two games canceled and play in the playoff and then still get the ten right if they win their first playoff game. So there is a little if you if you're counting no. the postseason. Because if they played seven, seven and two is nine. Oh yeah, I was counting the Big Ten championship too. That's part of the seven, though. They're only playing nine games, and that includes the Big Ten championship. Everyone's playing nine games, whether they're uh, in the Big Ten title game. Okay, I was confused for a second. Over. So basically, you can lose one game. One you can game. lose one game and still hit it if you go to the national title. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say over as a way to express confidence that the Big Ten and the teams that are involved in playing these games have, uh, you know, kind of mastered what they can to mitigate risk and do what they can as a as a unit to to get through it. All right, we're both over. Mark all these down and then uh, give us restaurant recommendations for Dallas for Renari has to buy me dinner in January. I could use them anyway. That place near the airport, that Mexican place, is really good. I don't know what it's called. That's where your your flight is landing at that place, right? You just guy, landed guy it. Guy Fieri went there. Yeah, the place well, is really good. Know. There's a lot yeah. of good Mexican in the city. Uh, I think this is a good. I was listening to our rival podcasts podcast, and they were talking about fast food, uh, and they had a really interesting. Who really, who's our rival? Buckeye talks our rival podcast. Oh, I thought you were talking about like a Michigan podcast. No, no, no. Buckeye talks our. I think you should listen to both, but definitely listen to us first um they were talking about what was the most appropriate drive length that you would go for a fast food item and i thought that that was interesting and for me the reason why i'm bringing this up is that dallas is the most is the best fast food city in america i think because they have everything they have all the west coast stuff and they also have all the south stuff and then there's a bunch of mexican places that have like high quality tacos that you can get through a drive through like fish tacos. Like, I don't know if you wanted fish tacos in a corn tortilla and like really good ones in a churro. If you could, where you'd even go in Columbus to get that. Me neither. So like the fact that that's all uh, within driving distance to me is very interesting. And it just reminded me because they were talking about how far they would go for one specific fast food item. And I did drive 45 minutes once to get blimpy. There's a cookout in Lexington, Kentucky, which is like a three hour drive from here. I think I do that. <laughs> Would you? Would you actually legitimately do it? Six hour round trips a lot. Like, can I? Do I? Can I get a hotel stay? Sure. Yeah, I would do it. If the main motivation is for you to go eat there, if the yeah, why I'd you go got down in your there. car is to eat there. Yeah, I'd drive down there, go to cookout, get a hotel room, eat the cookout in the hotel room, maybe go uh, watch some horse racing or something, get a little bourbon in me. Then get some more cookout before I leave and then come home. Yeah, it's just like, what's a reasonable distance to drive for real in your daily life if you really are craving a fast food item? And what would that fast food item be? I think 45 minutes to an hour is reasonable. I drove like when when the Harold and Kumar movies first came out and everyone's yeah. like, oh, I got to go to White Castle. Um, the closest White Castle to where I grew up in Philadelphia was like 50 minutes away and we drove there. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't worth it. Yeah, it's not worth a five minute drive. <laughs> But the example Doug gave was cheese curds or was Culver's, and I would drive 40 minutes to go to Culver's. For sure. Yeah. I think the closest that's... Culver's to me is in Hilliard. It's like a it's a legitimate like 20-minute drive. Yeah, I've, I have driven from my house downtown to go to Culver's for lunch. Yeah, me too. It's great. No one talks about Culver's enough. Yeah, it's, it's a Wisconsin chain, right? And now it's everywhere. Like in Dallas, they have In-N-Out. They have Brahms, that ice cream place. Love Brahms. They have Jack in the Box. They have all the major McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger Kings, all those. They have Whataburger. Uh, And they have all these Mexican restaurants. They've got Cane's. They've got every major fast food chain that you could come up with in my city. And, like, I think it's a very interesting way to get in and out and the southern chains, too. Like, I don't know 
where the closest Bojangles is, but I think that place is trash. But some mm. of the southern chains like that are in Texas too. So it's like you have West Coast feel at some places, and you also have the East and South and some of the other places, and it's a really good way to gain weight. They have cookout down there? They don't. They don't. Hmm. If Dallas gets cookout, then it's the perfect city. How much money? How much are you worth? Let's start one. <laughs> Not enough. I think it's as simple as having enough money to own a certain fast food franchise and put it in a place that it's not there as the easiest recipe to getting rich. I remember when In-N-Out opened in Tucson when I was in college, there were people waiting out outside In-N-Out for six hours for one of those hamburgers. And I think that's freaking crazy. But they opened White Castle in Vegas and Phoenix. People, those lines are through the roof because of all. if you put an In-N-Out in Columbus, Ohio, how quick till you're retired? Like eight minutes? Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised there's not one here. But you also have to have a net worth, I think, of $2 million to open a McDonald's franchise. Like, you have to have money to own one, to, to open one first. If the Jaguars and Eagles would have won yesterday, maybe I could have opened one. Yeah. It's too bad. But they but. didn't. But they didn't. All right. Let's, what, what do you say we tack on a defensive line preview to the end of this uh, fast food conversation? I like talking to you about food more than I like talking about Ohio State, just for the record. Yeah, I think we've established that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Larry Johnson spoke last week, and he might have been asked this, and then he brought it up again on the radio show, the idea that like this defensive end situation in particular could be very similar to 2017 when Nick Bosa, Tyquan Lewis, Sam Hubbard, and Jalen Holmes like basically played the identical number of snaps. It was like they all played between 520 and 540 snaps that year. It's kind of insane how, how even it was. Is your anticipation that this defensive end group with Zach Harrison, Tyreek Smith, Jonathan Cooper, Tyler Friday, Javante Jean-Baptiste is going to operate in a similar way? Or do you think Harrison and Smith and Cooper or two of those guys or one of those guys is going to far uh, exceed in workload compared to the rest of the group? Uh, I think that the three are going to play – the top three that you mentioned are going to be similar. Um, I don't know – if has any single person in that lineup or of the three Harrison Tyreek Smith and Jonathan Cooper earned the right to be on the field more than the other ones yet no uh, not yet I don't think so so I, I and I also know too that Tyreek has had some issues with injury so there's some preservation that has to go into that as well um, and you know if Harrison turns out to be Chase Young-ish then maybe he gets that but I think that it's a a nice rotation and some of the younger guys like Friday and uh, they, they too belong in the rotation. I feel like, um, and Larry Johnson loves doing it. So I anticipate there being a, a nice little mix there. That group in 2017, I, I was surprised to see that. I looked it up on pro football focus that foursome in 2017 that played the equal, equal number of snaps actually generated quite a bit more pressure than last year's defense did the one that had chase young on it like last year was chase young and not much else that was reliable um chase had 56 pressures nobody else had more than 25 in 2017 all those guys we mentioned bosa lewis hubbard and holmes had between like basically like 40 and and bosa led them with 66 so that was a pretty consistent group and and i think the the numbers back up the idea that you want to rotate them evenly um i think this starts out evenly i don't know if it ends evenly um and I also don't know like if Tyreek Smith might end up playing inside maybe more than we're we're considering right now because they need some help at, at defensive tackle, at least to start the year. If Haskell Garrett and Teron Vincent aren't playing um, for the first couple of weeks, like the Penn State game against a pretty good offense and a good offensive line, like they need interior pass rush. It's been like the secret sauce for this defense since Larry Johnson's been here is, is a really good disruptive interior pass rusher. And it's like Tommy Togiai and Antoine Jackson, I guess, could be that guy. But I don't know. I'd feel more comfortable if you, like, kick Tyreek Smith inside and let him play some three technique, which is part of the reason why I think Tyreek Smith's going to lead them in sacks this year because I think he's going to get opportunities inside and outside. Because it's his most natural ability is to to, to rush uh, the passer. And, and he's really good in pursuit, too, I think. But it seems like that would really be well for his skill set. When he was being recruited, wasn't there some conversation about like maybe he's a Draymond Jones type who ends up being a, a defensive tackle who starts high school and who bulks up and plays tackle? I it, maybe I can't remember off the top of my head. All I do remember is that Tyreek Smith's recruitment was all about his crazy athleticism, 
And if like you remember his recruitment and how it, it panned out, he was injured a lot in high school too. So he never really had an opportunity to, to have one of those dominant defensive end seasons, but he was getting offers from people just based on like what he looked like in gym shorts, uh, jumping and up and down on, on boxes and how fast he was. And just like the natural athleticism to me strikes me as somebody who's comes off the edge and has a lot of moves and is fast and is strong. And, uh, and I and what I've seen from him in pursuit sometimes when he's going sideline to sideline is super impressive so I don't know how much from a tactical standpoint it makes sense to put him in there and, and let him muck it up in the interior line um, but I do think that him getting after the quarterback is what he was meant to do on the football field and you can do that from multiple ways and and different techniques yeah I'm, I'm very interested to see what they do with him um, I think Harrison Harrison to me just is like he's too big, I think, to play inside, even when they do like the rushman package. But I think you can move Smith inside. I think you maybe move Cooper inside. Like Tyler Friday was teasing a little bit how they might have something for him given some inside looks. Friday and Smith are not typical defensive tackle size. They're both about 265 pounds. So I think you worry about durability in there a little bit, getting pushed around if a team decides to run the ball. But um, they need to find something to, to get some pressure up the middle and, and maybe take some pressure off a guy like Zach Harrison on the outside. Um, I'm not totally clear on how they're going to do that just yet. They had eight players last year with double-digit pressures. Chase Young, Jayshon Cornell, Devon Hamilton, Tyreek Smith, Baron Browning, Malik Harrison, Robert Landers, and Tyler Friday. Five of those guys are gone. Are you concerned at all that they're not going to be able to get after the quarterback in the way they need to to be an elite defense? I think there's moderate concern, but I I, I think – more of that concern is not having a first-round NFL draft pick, uh, proven NFL draft pick on their roster yet more so than it is about the depth. Now, I, I, I'm more concerned about the interior defensive line just depending on, on what's going on with Teron Vincent and whether or not Haskell Garrett can play in terms of stopping the run at times. I think that they might have an, like be vulnerable to getting beaten up up the middle a little bit without some of those stoppers, even if Tommy Togiai is healthy and ready to go. Uh more so than I'd worry about getting after the quarterback because, to me, getting after the quarterback is about athleticism, and Ohio State has a multitude of that. So, like, yeah. it's not necessarily a concern from that standpoint. I'm more so concerned about the longevity of of keeping people fresh over the course of the season and being able to stop the run and playing inside if you don't have two of the guys you were really counting on to be in there this year. I am, I'm in a similar place. I, I don't think – while like the counting sack numbers might be a little lower, I'm not concerned about their ability to generate pressure. I think Kerry Combs might do some different stuff that the Titans do with simulated pressures, with which is just like showing like you're going to bring seven or eight, but you still only bring four. It's not actually a blitz, but it looks like a blitz. Um, and that's where a guy like Byron Browning might come in. Pete Werner, if he's playing the will, I think is involved in that too. So I think they have enough pieces to, to have a pretty good pass rush, even if it's not – even if no one flashes the way that Chase Young flashed last year, I think that's almost an unreasonable um, expectation to have somebody do that again. Um, all of my focus, or the majority of my focus, is what's going to happen in the middle. And I love Tommy Togiai. I think I think he's going to get drafted after this year, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if he's like a, a top 80 or 90 draft pick. But at the moment, he's kind of all they have at nose tackle, or one technique, whatever you want to call it in this defense. Um and playing 70-something snaps on the defensive lines a lot. They don't normally ask guys to do that. But are you really going to take Tommy Togai off the field to like put Jerron Cajun or put a freshman like Ty Hamilton or Darian Henry in the game? Now, you might not have a choice. I don't know. That doesn't sound great to me. And there are only a handful of teams on the schedule that I think even worry you, but one of them I think would be Penn State with Journey Brown and that offensive line and the other running backs they have. Like, if you're not healthy and you're not deep at defensive tackle going in that week two game against Penn State, I'm mildly concerned about your ability to stop the run of that game. I don't, am I crazy for thinking that? No, not at all. No. So I don't know. Like I'm not. I think the potential for this group is really good, but you're banking a lot on it. I feel like we're banking much more on potential with this group than we have in a long time, and that's think, a little concerning to me. I think banking on potential is kind of fun. Because at times, I, I sometimes have wondered in the past whether or not Ohio State gets the most out of their young potential. But also, a guy like Ty Hamilton, I don't think is supposed to be counted on as productive as a freshman. So it's kind of like back and forth. Like, which which true freshman defensive linemen on this team are actually built to contribute immediately? 
I don't know if any of them are because a lot of these guys are, are they're not projects. Like Ty Hamilton was lowly rated, but like Darian Henry was a, like a mid two hundreds or, or, or sorry top two hundred prospect, and Jacoby Cowan's in a similar position. They have guys that I think are going to be good players, but they also have to change their bodies a little bit too to, to be that. So I don't know if they're ready just yet. But I, I also will say this too: like we're operating under the assumption that Haskell Garrett's not going to be able to play in the opener, and perhaps Teron Vincent will not be either. Larry Johnson was kind of coy about that. If one of those guys is good to go and healthy, I feel much better about this. Yeah, yeah. But, but taking both of those guys out of the equation is taking a lot out of the equation. Based on what you saw in the limited amount of time in the practice, like what is your what is your gut feeling about those guys and their ability to play? I mean, I didn't even see them there. They were they were there, and I was looking at the defensive tackles like they were there, and I somehow didn't notice them. So I don't really have a read on that. Um, and they're two very different situations. Like Haskell Garrett's situation is like borderline unprecedented the guy got shot in the face and somehow he's still practicing but i don't think he's going to be clear for contact yet um teron vincent i think is still feeling the effects of the shoulder injury he had last year and, and i don't like if it's something that's re-aggravated or something that's lingering for him like that's a tough injury i think to have when I mean, you're trying to be a disruptive sturdy strong interior presence on a defensive line so he has a ton of talent he was the number one defensive tackle in the country when they got him um, has NFL bloodlines like he's he's exactly what you want, but he could be just an unfortunate victim of of bad injury luck. So I, I don't know. I hope he does get on the field because I love to see what they have, but I'm not super confident. At least that he'll be out there at the start of the season. And Penn State has enough on offense that I'd be worried about their defensive tackle position going into that game if he's not ready. Yeah, no, you're that's 100 percent rational. Confidence level in this position group on a scale of one to ten, six and a half. Yeah, that's like right where I am. I put six point seven. <laughs> you're getting a, just, you're, you're getting really just to be a weird just to be a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, you're you're uh, you're giving those uh, real in depth reviews there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you why it's point seven. No, um, I, I guess it's what I said before. I, I I am confident in their ability to generate a pass rush. I think that'll be pretty good. They have enough there to do that, and and scheme wise, I think they can work around any talent dips. Not having Chase Young. Um, it's all about the middle and and what what the middle looks like when they get on the field against Penn State in week two because I think that's enough of an issue that it, I don't know if it can lose on the game but I think it can make the game much closer than maybe we're anticipating it being right now. Yep. Well, it makes you feel better too that I was tossing tens around like it was a beauty pageant and like this isn't right. a, this is a re you know this isn't the perfect team. So after we just got done going down a list of over unders that make it seem like we think they could they could beat the Steelers, I, I think it's also. <laughs> important to 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 understand acknowledge and kind of prepare yourself for what could potentially be a, a problem area and i think the defense has too and, and we'll get to the the other one here in a future episode doesn't mean that it can't exceed expectations or be great i think that they have the talent and the personnel to do so but being realistic about potential shortcomings i think is what's interesting in, in a way of trying to to view a team going into a new season yeah they're just questions they're just questions and and i know maybe as an ohio state fan you're used to not having very many questions about about your team and and rightfully so um but i think there are a few on the defensive side of the ball and i'm not sure they're any bigger than what's going to happen at defensive tackle if they can't get healthy at that position yep i agree with you we'll see how it plays out um season opener 12 days away october 24th against nebraska new kick on fox we have a few more episodes before we get to that game later this week we will preview a little bit of that nebraska matchup with our counterpart of the athletic mitch sherman we'll talk to you guys later in the week <laughs>